Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. I'm Susan Bonner, and my co-host, Deb, is with me in this new year, which is starting out frigid where I am. We're going to be negative temperatures for the next three days. Woohoo! Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I won't well, say what it was here today, then. Huh? I won't say what it was here today, then. Don't tell me. I won't. Okay. <laughs> well, since it is the new year, we are going to start with usually, well, we're going to be doing the Woman of the Revolution. That's what this show is about. It's historical and it's accurate, and you're going to find out things that you never knew because Deb and I are finding out things we never knew about the American Revolution as well as the women that were involved in it, and there were many. We've been doing this for almost three years. Actually, this will be three years January. Mm-hmm. Um and we haven't run out. So today we are going to start with a holidays, specifically New Year's Eve and New Year's, in the colonies because they did celebrate. I mean, although Deb said that some of the colonists didn't, uh, some of the colonies did not celebrate um, many holidays, right? Yeah, the um, the uh, Puritans, for the most part, um, did they they banned celebrating Christmas and and quite a few other, um, re, uh, you know, con- cultural holidays that were around the colonies, basically because they felt every day was a holy day and you didn't just, um, you didn't just pick one out to be holy on. So they were holy all the time and so they didn't do the Christmas thing and... It wasn't. Uh, it was the Germans that brought in a lot of the festivities, and the Swedes, of course. Um, and other than that, uh, it was the Scots who really, who really went all out for Christmas and, and New Year's. And it was, uh, you know, the the, Brit- the British Isles, of course, the people of the British Isles, um, because Christmas had been banned during the medieval time period, and. It was brought back in the late 1600s. The, the number that comes to mind is 80, 1684, but I could be mistaken on that because I've just read about a whole lot of different dates. But um, that they did bring back Christmas, celebrating Christmas. So the colonies were uh, joining in, and uh, there were there were different types of celebrations depending on where you came from. But uh, then, then it has kind of got to be an American Christmas, and as we do everything, we we take um, an idea and make it our own unique way of doing it. So, uh, let's see. Let me get to the top here. 
Um, so this is New Year's Day in the colonies. Uh, this is from the motherbedford.com website, which is a delightful website if you're um, interested in Bedford County especially, but uh, they have some very interesting tidbits on this website. And this is the one about New Year's. And it starts, the celebration of the arrival of the New Year has existed throughout all times and in all countries. Each culture has its own particular day that is celebrated as the start of a new year. The holiday celebrated by most of the people living during the colonial period in North American colonies took place according to the Julian calendar on the evening of 24 March until the year 1752. And then beginning in that year and continuing thereafter, it was taken place on the evening of the, uh, December 31st, which is the last day on the Gregorian calendar, which is, of course, the one we follow now. Um, and then it stretches over the into the wee hours of January 1st. It has a little note here that says, the Jewish settlers would have celebrated their new year in the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. The one custom that has, over the years, been associated with New Year's Eve celebration is the embracing and kissing of loved ones. In the colonial period, New Year's Eve was a time for young ladies to get together, prepare a large bowl of wassail, and carry it from house to house, sharing the warm drink with their neighbors and receiving small gifts in return. This was called wassailing. Wassail is the name of a heated spiced isn't ale. It, isn't it called wassailing? Wassailing. It's wassail. Yeah, and you know what's really, when you're going to be reading more, but when that struck me right there, because that was that's more of like you're saying the Germans bringing over that's more of a pagan celebration. Yeah, well, it was all it was all very. Um, there were, I mean, as much as the new gods, you know, the the one god of the Christian faith came about, and of course, you know, the Catholic Church and, and Rome and everything stating this is what it will be, you know, which was, like, really different from what uh, Peter said on the rock. But, um, well, anyways, everybody has their own ways of doing it. But you figure they were still following the Julian calendar up until 1752. And that comes from, you know, from the old Rome where, you know, Julian, um, they were following the old gods, and then the Gregorian calendar came in um, as science developed, and they realized that, oh, wait a minute, you know, um, there's the, sol- the solstice. And, and it was it was a lot of bringing in, well, people, had you know, for generations and generations, hundreds of years, had had their own traditions and their own way of worshiping and whatnot. And, you know, they brought in different traditions into their Christian faith. I mean, like the Germans had the uh, evergreen. But if you think of the, the pine tree, um, it's an evergreen, which some people have said, is you know connotes the the uh, 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 the life of Christ as being everlasting, right? Like they they were blending the old and the new. 
Right. Yeah, that's basically what it was. And and you can take most any any of the uh the decorations or the traditions we have, you know, we have the the mistletoe and the holly and all this and and you can you can relate it to the birth of Christ. But you figure Christ wasn't, you know, they they pretty much figured out even back then they they had it figured out that Christ was not born in December because of um what was said in the Bible about what was happening at the time that, you know, the shepherds wouldn't have been, you know, there with their flocks in the middle of December. They would have, you know. Also with the census, because that's where they were going to do a census. Right. So, you know, but does it matter? I mean, if you're a, a literalist, yes, I guess it does. But the way I look at it is, I look forward to December 22nd or to you know the day after the the winter solstice because that's the longest night of the year and I know that from then on the days are going to get longer. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what Brian and I say the same thing all the time because when we did we're like yeah but the days are getting shorter and it's not good for us because we we count on the light because we have a solar panel yes. and we live off the grid and we like the light so woohoo <laughs> yes exactly and you have to remember these people did not have electricity they they worked by candles you know you hear of so many people losing their eyesight but if you've ever hand sewn by candlelight you will know why these women especially these women lost their eyesight. I mean, my God, it wore out their little eyes. Jeez. Um, especially if they were working on morning garb because it was all black. Yep. So there's lots of little things like that that you you don't, you don't think about and you take for granted because we live in, in this era of electricity and warmth by, you know, in the flick of a switch and, um, uh, you know, on porcelain fixtures, and you don't have to go out in the night and go out to the outhouse and all that stuff. Speak for okay. yourself. Oh, you know, it, it, the longer and plus, from from being becoming a gardener now, my my be, first my new year is in March. I can start planting my seeds. You know, start my seedlings, and that's the thing. You know, but then you can get into Easter with the resurrection and, the, you know, the spring and the... Mm. So, anyways, it's very fascinating to read all about it, and I've read a lot about it. And, but anyways, we're talking about New Year's. We could, I could get into all the holiday. I just love the how they all came about. But anyways, so here we are. So, young ladies, you have to remember, they were looking for husbands, too. You know, and you had to look for husbands. So they got together and went around, and you got to go into everybody's house, <laughs> and 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 sharing a warm drink. You know, so yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, a lot of um, hopeful young ladies going around on New Year's Eve. Um, and so is this is a heated spiced ale, and the name comes from the Middle English. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but waste or wash and how how meaning health to you was I I'm not sure, 
The drink consisted of mulled cider or ale with sugar, ginger, cinnamon, and other spices mixed in. Pieces of toast would be floated on the top of the bowl. That part I did not understand, but that's okay. I'd prefer, you know, like whipped cream or something. The waffle was also known by the name of lamb's wool. That's a whole other thing. I, I don't know why, but that's what it says. So, now, John Selden, an English jurist, that means he was a scholar of English law and constitution, was a prolific writer who was published during and after his lifetime. One of his books, published in 1689, some 35 years after Selden's death in 1654, was titled Table Talk. In it, Selden noted, I see a custom in some parts among us. I mean the yearly waffle in the country on the uh, vigil of the new year, which I conjecture was a usual ceremony among the Saxons before Hengist as a note of health wishing, which was expressed among other nations in that form of drinking to the health of their mistresses and friends. So basically, when you think about New Year's, you're drinking to their health. I mean, health was very important. I mean, God forbid the plague, the flu, um, or, or the, the, you know, dysentery, typhoid, smallpox, you know, any of those horrible diseases that would wipe out, wipe out half of a community would come. So health was really important. We take it very much for granted now um, because we don't have a lot. Of, we have all the vaccinations and we don't have uh, so many of the terrible diseases they had at that time because we have antibiotics and things. There was also a custom called apple howling. <laughs> it sounded fun. In which a group of celebrants on New Year's Eve would take the waffle bowl and go into any nearby orchard. They would encircle a certain tree and while wrapping the tree with sticks, chant the following verses. Stand fast, root, bear well, top, pray God send us a good howling crop. Every twig, apples big, every bough, apples, and now, hats full, caps full, full quarter, sacks full. Again, this was very important, the harvest. You wanted your crops to grow well. So they, you know, health and, and, and crops were very important at this time, especially, you know, for for the people because they did not have um, Walmart. It was customary among the Scots for children to go about from house to house on New Year's Eve begging for bread and cheese, which was called nog money. During the colonial period, it was customary to give small gifts on New Year's Day. It was believed that the ending of the previous year was to be celebrated with drinking. Excuse me while I get rid of a stink bug off my arm. Thank you. Oh, God, I hate those things. Anyways, getting back to the colonial period. Hmm. Okay, it was believed that the ending of the previous year was to be celebrated with drinking and socializing with loved ones and friends and that the starting of the new year should be celebrated with the giving and receiving of gifts. Um, in In 1598, Bishop Hall, in his satires, noted that the usual New Year's gift should be a capon. capon. Mm. Another gift that was commonly given was an orange with cloves stuck in it. A ribbon would be tied around a fresh orange, and then the entire exposed surface would be covered with whole cloves and then dusted in cinnamon. So now you know where your whole, you know, those little cloves in, in covered oranges come from. And, of course, 
getting an orange in January or, you know, the end of December and January was a treat because in many parts of the world and the country, oranges were not growing in the middle of the winter because they didn't have a Walmart. Um, Let's see. A book published in Latin by Thomas, now I'm not even sure how to say his name, I would say Neogorgas, the Popish Kingdom or Reign of Antichrist, whole, I guess he didn't like the Catholics, was translated into English and printed in London in 1570. In that book, Neogorgas presented the verses, the next to this is New Year's Day, where on to every friend, they costly presents in do bring and New Year's gifts do send. These gifts the husband gives his wife and father ex the child, and meister on his men bestows the like with favor mild. Good beginning of the year they wish and wish again, according to the ancient guise of heathen people vain. These eight days no man doth require his debts of any man. Their tables do they furnish out all the meats they can. Uh, with March pains, tarts, and custards great, they drink with staring eyes. They rout and revel, feed and feast, as merry as pies. As if they should at the entrance of this new year have to die, yet would they have their bellies full and ancient friends alive. So, it was very, I mean, oh, you, you figure, they saw a lot of death, they saw a lot of illness, um, between the sickness and the wars and and failed crops and droughts and things, so it's really it really gives you a, um, a a perspective for the most of man's and women's, um, especially women. Uh, they're, they're, the history of of the earth where humans abided. It was it was you never knew what was coming. I mean, and there wasn't a safety net other than the community. And if it hit the community, you were in dire straits. So I love this when I was reading this, that, you know, we we think about the ball dropping and all this and going to the Times Square and being crushed in with a bunch of drunken people and, you know, getting your your drunk on and... um, and all that stuff, but it was really good wishes to your your friends and your family and your neighbors um, that everything would go well, because so often it didn't, and and it was hard times. So that just really uh, made me um, appreciate this holiday a bit more than I have been previously, especially this year. (sighs) That's nice. Well, there are some superstitions that are associated with New Year's um, that the the people uh, paid attention to in in this time. It was believed that if New Year's Day opened with red skies, that the following year would be one of many strifes and debates between people and that robberies would be quite common. I'm thinking that uh, 2016 had red skies. Another superstition involved opening a Bible at random, 
And before eating breakfast, people would take turns opening a Bible completely at random. Then a verse would be pointed to on the two open pages, again at random. The verse that was thus randomly chosen was believed to foreshadow the events of the following year for the participants. And during the colonial period, at a time when houses were heated and lit by open fires, it was believed that if anyone took fire from your house, one of your family members would die before the year was finished. I imagine they kept quite close watch on their fireplaces at that time. It was considered bad luck for the first visitor of the day to be a woman. Hmm, that must have been on the coast where they thought it was bad luck to have a woman on a ship. Bad luck was also feared if anything was thrown out of a house. In the day and age before modern plumbing, women would throw dirty water out the door and ashes that accumulated in the fireplace needed to be removed. But because the removal of anything portended bad luck, families were very cautious about their actions on New Year's Day. And then there was uh, there's a traditional food. Um, German and Swiss settlers brought the tradition of eating sauerkraut. Um, the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam... Um, had a treat, <laughs> I can't even say this, New Yarskoken, any Swedish people out there help me because, I mean, this word is very long, but it's a crisp cinnamon flavored wafer that was topped with whipped cream, and they were, the wafers were heated in special wafer irons that imparted a design on both sides of the cake. And then here in the South... They had a favorite food called Hoppin' John and Greens. And this dish consisted of black-eyed peas mixed with rice, onion, and fried bacon slices. And some families would substitute the ham for the bacon. The greens referred to the leaves and stems of either mustard, collard, or turnip. When the dish was was kept as leftovers to be eaten on the day after New Year's Day, its name was changed to Skippin' Jenny instead of Hoppin' John. I love that. I'm going to have to make that. I'm going to have to find a, a good traditional recipe for that and see if I, it sounds good. <laughs> so that is um, pretty much the the history of uh, the New Year's Eve celebrations up, uh, to, you know, during the, the colonial period here in the colonies in North America. So it sounded like they had fun. They certainly take everything more seriously and nothing for granted. Yes, yes. And isn't that the way to live life? Really. Um, you know, have a happy time and don't take anything for granted and be thankful for what you got. Well, our lady today is going to be a patriot. Her name is Sarah Franklin Bach, and she is the daughter of Benjamin Franklin. We now we've so far done the wife of Benjamin Franklin, his sister, and now we're going to do his daughter. So I am going to start with the. Uh, let me see. I don't know if I want to do that one. Let me do. Um, woman history blog. Sarah Franklin was born to Benjamin Franklin and Deborah Reed Franklin at Philadelphia on the 11th day of September, 1744. Sarah, known as Sally throughout her life, had a typical education for a girl of her status in 18th century Philadelphia. She had a great love of reading and music and was considered a skilled harpsichordist. 
Let me see what they had on the next one. Uh, Yes, Um, we'll be flipping back and forth between the many sites, you know, the sites that we do find. Some have some information, some have has other information. So we just get back and forth. Right. So this is the American Revolution, and it says the same thing. Of her early years, no particulars can now be obtained, but from her father's appreciation of the importance of education and the intelligence and information that she displayed through life, we may presume that her studies were as extensive as were then pursued by females in any of the American colonies. And again, we're we're busting a myth that women were barefoot, pregnant, uneducated, didn't own businesses. That's not true. Well, it was quite a lot of women that were highly educated, did own businesses, and were pregnant in the kitchen. And in um, the dairy, and in the field, and in the bar, yeah. and the dining room. <laughs> women have always been incredible, and I'm sorry, uh, folks, but the feminist movement really diminished women. Yes, it did. Especially, well, yes. Especially today. Yep. Um, okay, back to women history blog. In 1764, Sally had to part with her father when he was sent to Europe for the first time as representative of the colony. The people of Pennsylvania were at that time divided into two parties. Now, this is, this is way before the first shot was heard around the world because this, had, this stuff with England had been brewing for a very long time and people do not realize that it didn't just happen overnight. Um, it took many years and a lot of hardship reigned on the people before they decided to to go against the crown. Um, so they were divided into two parties, just like the whole rest of the country was, the supporters and the opponents of the proprietors, which I mean England, the managers of the colony, William, which, is, which is because the king was appointing uh, people that, that were governors and uh, the most part, the legislatures were from the people of the colonies, but the big wigs were appointed by the king. William Penn's sons had left their father's religion, the Quakers, and joined the Church of England, the religion of most of the proprietors, and many Quakers were in opposition. Um, now, let me go back to uh, the AmericanRevolution.org. So it says the same thing, um, that the Quakers were in opposition and with them Franklin had acted. After having been for 14 years a member of the assembly, he lost his election to that body in the autumn of 1764 by a few votes. But his friends being in the majority in the House immediately left him agent of the Providence in England. So um, the Property Party made a great opposition to his appointment and an incident occurred in connection with it that shows us how curiously the affairs of church and state were intermingled in those days, which they, there's no separation of church and state in the United States Constitution at all. A petition or re- remonstrance to the assembly against his being chosen agent was laid for signature upon the communion table of Christ's church, in which he was a pew holder and his wife a communicant. His daughter appears to have resented this outrage upon decency and the feelings of her family and to have spoken of leaving the church in consequence, which gave occasion to the following dissuasive in a letter which her father wrote to her from Reedy Island 
November 8, 1764, on his way to Europe. Now, we're just going to give a little background. I don't know how much you found out about this church and what was going on. Um, let me see. Because I... Uh, Christmas. No, that was the Christmas one. Let's see. Oh, here we are. Um, I had to go through all them. I have, like, I don't know how many links to this one, but... <laughs> yep, well... Ah, okay. Let's see. Let me find it. Okay, it says, Benjamin Franklin was not a Quaker. This is from fi.edu, and it's about Benjamin Franklin. He was baptized on the day he was born at Old South Church Theater Meeting House on downtown Washington Street, Boston, in Philadelphia. He occasionally worshipped at Christ Church, the Church of English Parish, established in colonial Philadelphia in 1695 and later recognized in, reorganized, excuse me, into the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. Um, let's see. Does it say any more here? No, I think I have to go back and find the next one. Say, okay, what's this one say? Hold on, we're just getting here. Um, Oh, no, that's the battle, so we'll get to that later. Well, and the other thing that we're trying to show is that all of our founding fathers were Christians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically what it was. He um, he was, uh, he, w- he, he went to, and another thing I read, which I can't seem to find, I don't think I put that link in, unfortunately. Um, he did go to uh, the, this Christ Church five times. He went five Sundays, and even though he was a pew holder. Uh, but then he decided that, um, you know, you don't have to be in a house of God to, you know, worship God. And, and he just wasn't a church-going kind of guy. But he was very, very, um, you know, he, he was a Christian. He believed in God, and he took care of it in his own way, whereas his wife went to church. Um, and and his daughter apparently did, uh, but he, you know, I think it was more from what I could get from this uh, this, uh, this article that I read, and I wish I had listed it. <laughs> um, it, it was talking about. It seemed to me that he just didn't like the politics of it all. That he felt that politics. Um, you were there to worship God. And, you know, this this petty bickering that went on wasn't to his taste. So he just didn't go to church. But he was at a, a basically, it was an Episcopalian church, essentially. You know, he, he, he you know, the, the Church of England, which then was reorganized, you know, they, they came into the different... Um, chapters or whatever they call them. I'm not a real church-going person either, so. Well, and that's why I wanted you to bring that up also because of the letter that he wrote to his daughter. Mm. Um, it's, uh, I'll read it. It's going to express that even though he doesn't... Uh, well, let me read it first, and then we can discuss it. Hold on. What do I do with my mouth? Hmm. Okay, so 
So this is what he said. Go constantly to church whoever preaches. The act of devotion in the common prayer book is your principal business there. And if properly attended to, do more towards amending the heart than sermons generally can do. For they were composed by men of much greater piety and wisdom than our common composers of sermons can pretend to be. And therefore, I wish you would never miss the prayer days. Yet I do not mean you should despise sermons, even of the preachers you dislike. For the disclosure is often much better than the man, as sweet and clear waters come through very dirty earth. I am the more particular on this head, as you seemed to express a little before I came away, some inclination to leave our church, which I would not have you do. So he wanted his daughter to go, go above the fray, in other words, right? Yeah. Yeah, to to go he, go to church for the business of worshiping your God, you know, and and take the sermons, you know, basically with a um a, a thing of salt. What's that saying? Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, a grain of salt, because the uh, the the prayer book, the common prayer book, you know, was written by some really amazing religious men and women, um, you know, the saints and whatnot, as they call them. They were just very, um, um, you know, nuns and and, uh, monks and and philosophers, too. Uh, But they they were written, you know, more than you know, with with a greater connection to God than you know your your basic parish um, minister that came out and gave a sermon every week. You know, some were better than others, and a lot of them weren't good at all. So, you know, don't don't let the the sermon be the main point. You're there to worship your God. And common prayer, the common prayer book, was the way to do it. He felt. Exactly. He didn't want her to lose her faith. Right. So, and again, showing that, yes, all of our founding fathers, even Benjamin Franklin was a man of faith. Okay. On October 29th, again from Women's History Blog, 1767, Sally married Richard Bach in spite of her family's misgivings about his financial situation. It was Franklin's wish that Sally not marry Bach until his financial situation stabilized out of fear that Bach was only marrying for money. Nevertheless, Sally was devastated, and Deborah Franklin allowed the wedding to take place against Franklin's wishes. After their marriage, Mr. and Mrs. Bach appeared to have resided with Mrs. Franklin in the house built by her in the year 1765. Deborah Franklin died on December 19, 1774, having been attacked by paralysis four days previously. The mansion house continued to be occupied by the Bach family. It was not until Sally gave birth to her first child and Benjamin Franklin met Richard Bach that he truly accepted the marriage. Bach never became a successful businessman, though Franklin gave the couple several loans and helped them set up several stores in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin had to support Sally and her family that included eight children for the rest of his life. And now he's doing this when he's not there, just so everyone's clear. Because either he was out being a diplomat 
in other countries or he was at the Continental Congress. So pretty much Sally is run, Sally and her husband are running the show. Yeah, because he didn't even make it home for, for Deborah's death. He didn't get no. home in time. Um, and, you know, he had been in, in uh, Europe for going on 10 years by then, so. Right. So, let's see, where do we go? Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Sally Bach, a Revolutionary War patriot, led an active public life according to the standards of womanhood in the late 18th century. As the daughter of Benjamin Franklin, she had an unusual access for a woman to the political life in revolutionary Philadelphia. Although her primary role was caretaker of her family and home, she played an active role in the revolution through her relief work and her father's political host as, as, as her father's political hostess. Sally closely followed the events leading up to the revolution and through her relief work supported the war by raising money for the Continental Army, which we're going to get into later. Um, but, let's see, uh, now I'm going back to American Revolution. The opinion entertained by many that a disposition to mobbing is of modern growth in this country is erroneous. Now, I'm piecing this with her political life because we're in a civil war right now, and she is a staunch patriot, and Philadelphia is being torn apart between the patriots and the loyalists. So the Colonial Times outrages of this character were at least as frequent as now. Dr. Franklin had not been gone a year before his house was threatened with an attack. Mrs. Franklin sent her daughter to Governor Franklin's in Burlington and proceeded to make preparations for the defense of her castle, the defense of her castle. And this is all going on while Sally was married and they had moved in with her and things were starting to heat up. Um, her letter detailing the particulars may be, I don't want to read that. Okay. The first letter from Sarah Franklin to her father has been preserved and was written after her return from her visit to Burlington. And it she says, and get ready for the Stamp Act, okay, because this is the very beginning of the revolution um, that she's involved in. And Franklin's already been, we already, how can I put this? We already had to send people out to other countries because we had already, the Declaration of Independence had been written. We already were starting to, to, to you know, get that going. Um, but this was, what we were trying to do was stop all this stuff, right? Am I saying this correct? Yeah, yeah. The uh, Well, it was because after the French and Indian War ended, the king, um, king, king George III, uh, took the throne in 1760. And the French and Indian War was over in 62, 63. And his, his coffers were empty, and he felt, and Parliament agreed, that by taxing the colonists in certain ways would help to pay for the, the protection that the British Army had um, given the, the colonists. And the, so that's... That, that was basically what was happening at that time is that King George wanted to, you know, fill up the the royal coffers again. Right. So she writes, the subject is now Stamp Act and nothing else is talked of. The Dutch talk of the stamp tack, the Negroes of the camp. In short, everybody has something to say. 
The commission's bootstrapful gloves, lavender, and tooth powder give us a humble idea of the state of the supplies in the colonies at that day. There is not a young lady of my acquaintance, but what desires to be remembered to you. I am, my dear, your very dutiful daughter, Sally Franklin. So they're already getting squeezed, and we'll talk about the stamp act to kind of get you to, to they did a bunch of acts, and actually they did repeal the stamp act, which she writes again. But um, let's, let's remind the folks what it, what it is. Okay. All right. This is from uh, the military history from about.com from uh, about the stamp act. Okay. This is the background. In the wake of the Britain victory in the seventh year's French Indian War, the nation found itself with a burgeoning national debt that had reached 130 million pounds by 1764. In addition, the government of the Earl of Butte made the decision to retain a standing army of 10,000 men in North America for colonial defense as well as to provide employment for politically connected officers. While Butte had made this decision, his successor, George Grenville, was left with finding a way to service the debt and pay for the army. Taking office in April 1763, Grenville began examining taxation objects for raising the necessary funds. Blocked by the politic climate from increasing taxes in Britain, he sought to find ways to produce the needed income by taxing the colonies. His first action was the introduction of the Sugar Act, in April 1764, essentially a version of the earlier Molasses Act, the new legislation actually reduced the levy with the goal of increasing compliance. In the colonies, the tax was opposed due to its negative economic effects and increased enforcement, which hurt smuggling activities. Now, the Stamp Act, um, in passing the Sugar Act, Parliament indicated that a stamp tax could be forthcoming. Commonly used in Britain with great success, stamp taxes were levied on documents, paper, goods, and similar items. The tax was collected at purchase and a stamp, tax stamp affixed to the item showing that it had been paid. Stamp taxes had been previously proposed for the colonies and Grenville had examined draft stamp acts on two occasions in late 1763. Towards the end of 1764, petitions and news of colonial protests regarding the Sugar Act, reached Britain. Though asserting Parliament's right to tax the colonies, Grenville met with colonial agents in London, including Benjamin Franklin, in February 1765. In the meeting, Grenville informed the agents that he was not opposed to the colonies, suggesting another approach to raising funds. While none of the agents offered a viable alternative, they were adamant that the decision be left to the colonial government. Meeting to find funds, Grenville pushed the debate into Parliament. After lengthy discussion, the Stamp Act of 1765 was passed on March 22nd with an effective date of November 1st. As Grenville began uh, to appoint stamp agents for the colonies, opposition to the Act began to take forms across the Atlantic. Discussion of the stamp tax had begun the previous year following its mention as part of the passage of the Sugar Act. Colonial leaders were particularly concerned as the stamp tax was the first internal tax to be levied on the colonies. Also, the act stated that admiralty courts would have jurisdiction over offenders. This was viewed as an attempt by Parliament to lessen the power of the colonial courts. And this was one of the this was like one of the main reasons um, that the colonists were in an uproar. The key issue that quickly emerged as the 
centerpiece of colonial complaints against the Stabs Act was that of taxation without representation. And this was the number one. This derived from the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which forbade the imposition of taxes without the consent of Parliament. As the colonists lacked representation in Parliament, taxes imposed upon them were deemed to be a violation of their rights as Englishmen. While some in Britain stated that the colonists received virtual representation as members of Parliament, theoretically represented the interests of all British subjects, the argument was largely rejected. The issue was further complicated by the fact that the colonists selected their own legislatures. As a result, it was the colonists' belief that their consent to taxation rested with them rather than Parliament. In 1764, several colonies created committees of correspondence to discuss the repercussions of the Sugar Act and to coordinate action against it. These committees remained in place and were used to plan colonial responses to the Stamp Act. By the end of 1765, all but two of the colonies had sent formal protests to Parliament. And in addition, many merchants began boycotting British goods. While colonial leaders were pressuring Parliament through official channels, violent protests erupted throughout the colonies. In several cities, mobs attacked stamp distributor houses and businesses, as well as those of government officials. These actions were partially coordinated by a growing network of groups known as the Sons of Liberty. Forming locally, these groups were soon communicating, and a loose network was in place by the end of 1765. Usually led by members of the upper and middle class, the Sons of Liberty worked to harness and direct the rage of the working classes. In June 1765, the Massachusetts Assembly issued a circular letter to the other colonial legislatures suggesting that members meet to consult together on the present circumstances of the colonies. Convening on October 19th, the Stamp Act Congress met in New York and was attended by nine colonies. The rest later endorsed its actions. Meeting behind closed doors, they produced the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, which stated that only colonial assemblies had the right to tax. The use of admiralty courts was abusive. Colonists possessed the rights of Englishmen, and Parliament did not represent them. So in October 1765, Lord Rockingham, who had replaced Grenville, learned of the mob violence that was sweeping across the colonies, and as a result, he soon came under pressure from those who did not wish Parliament to back down and those whose business enterprises were suffering due to the colonial protests. With businesses hurting, London merchants, under the guidance of Rockingham and Edmund Burke, began their own committees of correspondence to bring pressure on Parliament to repeal the Act. Disliking Grenville and his policies, Rockingham was more predisposed to the colonial point of view. During the repeal debate, he invited Franklin to speak before Parliament. In his remarks, Franklin stated that the colonies were largely opposed to internal taxes, but willing to accept external taxes. After much debate, Parliament agreed to repeal the Stamp Act with the condition that the Declaratory Act be passed. This act stated that Parliament had the right to make laws for the colonies in all matters. The Stamp Act was officially repealed on March 18, 1770. 1766, and the Declaratory Act passed the same day. Without, while unrest in the colonies subsided after the Stamp Act was repealed, the infrastructure that it created remained in place. The committees of correspondence, Sons of Liberty, and systems of boycotts were to be refined and used later in protest against future taxes. The larger constitutional issue of taxation without representation re remained unresolved and continued to be a key part of colonial protests. The Stamp Act, along with future taxes such as the Townsend Act 
helped push the colonies along the path towards the American Revolution. Yeah, so as you say, it started uh, well, like 12 years before the war really, you know, was in in uh, full tilt. And this this is what was leading up. And if you read anything about Sam um, Adams and uh, John Adams and uh, oh, what was it, Hancock, um, who was a smuggler, made his money smuggling. Um, up in Massachusetts, they were they were shouting out loud about this in the in the 60s. I mean, if you read about Sam Adams, he he was starting to to try to warn the colonies about the the parliamentary actions back in the 50s. You know, when the war, the French and Indian War, he saw that as as um, something to to watch because well. Controlling the John, John was actually trying to calm everybody down. He wasn't John wasn't as, as adamant about it as Samuel Adams. John, uh, Sam Adams was the uh, the rabble rouser. Right. And if you read his his um his writings during the sixties, uh, you can see why he made John a little nervous. <laughs> he did. He did. And John was a lot. John. He was a lot, calm, you know, calmer, level-headed. He had the yes. mind of a lawyer. I mean, he was he was different than his cousin. But again, now in the timeline that you just said, Franklin is over there trying to calm things down. Yeah. And um, his daughter is over on the other side of the pond with the backlash from all this. So. Um, in a letter dated on the 23rd of the following March, the Stamp Act is, again is mentioned. We have heard by a roundabout way that the Stamp Act is repealed. The people seem determined to believe it, though it came from Ireland to Maryland. The bells rung, we had bonfires, and one house was illuminated. Indeed, I never heard so much noise in my life, and very children seemed distracted. I hope and pray the noise may be true. So this is what was happening over here when the Stamp Act was repealed. And um, they were still, they were still, you know, wary of it, and they weren't sure if it was true or not. Because, and we've said this before, Deb and I, that it takes months to get stuff back then to, you know, go from England or wherever else in the world to the colonies. That's how long news took months if it even got there. So they're a little like, um, okay, we're going to celebrate, but we don't really, we're not sure yet. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, they put the other acts on them as well, right? Right. And and there were other things that were going on too. Um, you know, the king, King George the Third, was quite different different from his father. Um, he wanted to bring the power back to the throne, whereas King George the Second was more of a, I'm going to be king. And Parliament can handle the laws, and I'll only stick my nose in when I need something done. And George came in, George III came in and said, okay, we're going to get this back, you know, the royal back into royalty here and uh, put the power back on the throne. So he was was different um, in his way of dealing with the colonies and England. you know, if you read about the two kings, you'll you'll see the they were very different men. 
even though they were father and son. But uh, so even well, that's the same thing with the pens as well. And, and yes. just because just because you're a good person doesn't mean that your you know your offspring are going to be. <laughs> or even you know even if your offspring are really great, your father might have been an absolute bastard. You know so. Um, there are different men, different ways of ruling, uh, you know, different ideas of of rulership, and you know, the pens. Oh, they they yes, uh, they have quite differences too, and they were the 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 main people in in Penn, I mean, William Penn started um, Pennsylvania, so and on his terms, and if you didn't go by his terms, you weren't welcome. You know, and William Penn uh, Jr. there, when, uh, his son, was, was very different. And he was in Parliament in England. He went back to England. And uh, that's a very interesting, that's a whole other interesting side part of the history of our country, too. So, I, I mean, it's just, isn't it amazing, Susan? We We speak of one thing, and it blossoms into, like, the, a whole bouquet. <laughs> there was so much going on at this time. Well, you know, and I, I hate to say this, but we're going through the same thing right now. Pretty much. Yep. We don't have any, I don't care what anyone says. We have no representation. We are telling these cockroaches what we want, and they don't care. No. That's it. That They've, they've become, um, you know, the elite, and... Uh, they're trying to form an oligarchy underneath a global uh, um, governance, which is terrifying. Well, I mean, um, okay. I'm just going to read something <laughs> that, uh, and and you have to take everything that these people say with a grain of salt, ladies and gentlemen, because um, I think that's going to be our theme tonight: the grain of salt, yeah. because they 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 like to project and. Actually, there's, we did an article about some of the things. George Soros is having a meltdown. Brian doesn't think so, but I think he is having a meltdown. Um, and one of his, one of his uh, statements were saying about our election. He said, quite simply, many people felt that the, uh, the elite had stolen their democracy. Now, that's coming from an elite. So that's projection, and that's actually what happened a lot of and during the revolution as well. Yes, they projected what they wanted. That actually they were doing that they said we were doing. Oh, and that's that's a that's a tyrant's mo. Um, you can always tell the ones who wish to rule everybody else by their statements about the others. I mean, it's it's amazing when you, because you can always tell, especially today, you can always tell when a socialist, progressive, communist, whatever, is is uh, speaking. You can always tell if, you know, when they're talking about themselves, they're pointing their finger at you, but they're really accusing you of what they're doing. Right, and this is another, and I, this does go along with history now. I'm at, um, we're not strictly like the PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us. If you go over there, that's um, that's just strictly a history 
no politics, nothing. But that doesn't go flush for our show because it's just too we're it's too much the same situation we're in. And the other thing that George Soros says is that I find the current moment in history very painful, he writes. Open societies are in crisis and various forms of closed societies, from fascist dictatorships to mafia states, are on the rise. Yeah. Well, no. I'm thinking. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not, no. Actually, and the, the truth is, if you go around, if you if you really look around the world, more and more countries are saying no to like, all right, Brexit. They're saying no to socialism. It's not working. They're trying to like struggle to be more free and not fascist dictatorships or mafia states. They're actually trying to be freer around the world. The West, like the Western, yes. And then you go to the Middle East. You want to talk fascism. Right. Yeah, or exactly. tyrants uh, and, and using religion to, to do what the communists did in politics, using politics. And now, now we're going to go back to her, okay? This is what's going on at her time, okay? And I just read to you what was going on around our time right now that all around the world there's these little grumblings of we need to be freer. Um, this is this is horrible. So right now she has a letter to her brother written September 30th, 1766, speaks thus of some political movements in Philadelphia at the time. The letter from the Mr. Sargent was to Daniel Wistar. I send you the Dutch paper. Now we want to go look up the Dutch paper and Deb, tell them what you found. I found there were quite a few of them in Pennsylvania, and I couldn't begin to pronounce their names, nor could I read them because they were in Dutch. <laughs> oh, yep. so Matt, I'm, I'm, you know, apparently she could read Dutch because <laughs> I couldn't. And apparently, and apparently, her brother could too. Yeah, because and and in Pennsylvania, of course, you know, the Dutch were were prominent, and they. Uh, and there were several papers um, from you know, like Sweden and and uh, and Denmark, uh, the people that came over, um, and they they did they had they had uh, you can you can look up uh, Dutch papers in colonial times and you'll find them and you know uh, and you won't unless you can read Dutch you can't read them but they're there and you can see them. <laughs> right. But so I. <laughs> where I think there's something about it. On Friday night, there was a meeting of seven or eight hundred men in Hare's Brew House where Mr. Ross mounted a bag of grain, spoke to them a considerable time. He read Sargent's letter and some others, which had a good effect, as they satisfied many. Some of the people say he outdid Whitfield. Now, Whitfield was a famous preacher, and I forget his first name. Do you remember his first name? No, Reverend Whitfield. <laughs> yeah, I'll look it up. But anyway, Reverend Whitfield was a, a reverend, like um, Deb just said, and he was famous for stirring up his flock to go to war, you know, for independence, for freedom, that God gives us freedom, God gives us independence. He he did this from the pulpit, and they were, he was part of what people in England, not here so much in the beginning, but people in England, especially in the Parliament that was paying attention, called them the Black Robe Regiment. 
because they said that without these preachers and reverends, the United States would have never won the war because they, they put so much faith in us that God was with us to go forward that that helps win the war. And right now there's another movement out there started by um, wall builders, and they, are, they have a movement called the Black Robe Regiment. And if you have a preacher or a reverend um, that you go to, to your church, um, mention it to them. They can go onto the wall builders' website, and they have how they can get information about it, how they can join it, um, what sermons they can do, because um, there's no separation of church and state, ladies and gentlemen, none. And we need to get that back. Yeah. We need to get this social justice crap out of our churches. He, uh, his first name was George. George Whitfield. Okay. So they're saying that this speaker, Mr. Roth, which Deb is going to talk about in a little bit, is was as out, that outdid Whitfield in his speech, how passionate he was. And Sir John says he is in direct line from Solomon. He spoke several things in favor of his absent friend whom he called the good, the worthy Dr. Franklin, and his worthy son. After he was gone, you, Robert, stood up and proposed him in William's place and desired those who were for him to stand up, and they all rose to a man. Now, look at how, how intricate this is, um, Dev. She's in a meeting where they're talking about her father. Yeah. And then she writes her brother to tell her that he was in a, he was in a meeting where they talked about her father. Now, her brother ends up not being a patriot, but he's still her, her brother. So at this time, he was on the fence. Because he ends up being the governor of New York, doesn't he? New Jersey. New Jersey? Okay. And um, loyalist till the day he died. Yeah. So, I mean, she's sitting here, and they're, they're, they're speechifying, and they're talking about her father, and... I mean, and you would you know that everybody there is treasonous right now, including her, and her father's in in England, and they're talking about him in America. That would put his life in danger as well. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let me see what else I got. I'm going back to the woman's blog. I think they went through this though. Yeah, they did. Okay. So um, now I want to talk about the meeting house a little bit and Mr. Ross because he was very important. And this this hot hairs brew house was like the main tavern for people, patriots, to go and make their plans and meetings, right? Well, yeah, it was one of them. But um, it was basically because of Mr. Hare's Porter. <laughs> it was one of the most popular beers in uh in Pennsylvania at the time and it went through the colonies um yeah and it was it was uh of course taverns were the place where you know the the patriots met to discuss you know the plans and what they should do and the news and and, you know, the letters that were circulated from the committees of correspondence, um, you know, they, they would get together and share the news, what was said, and what was happening in other colonies, too. So um, he uh, he had this tavern, um, 
and it, it was, of course, in Philadelphia, and, you know, many of the attendees of the Continental Congress enjoyed a pint or two there regularly, and George Washington and John Adams were the beer's biggest fans. Um, so, let's see. Uh, this is more about his, his brewery than, um, than uh, you know, the meetings, but it says here, at the time... Um, Colonists beginning, were beginning to desire American products instead of continuing to line the pockets of, the, of England. Uh, Hare crafted a true English porter stateside, and uh, most history records indicate it was the first porter ever made in the United States. And Hold on a minute, Deb, but that's important. That's why I wanted you to read this, because it's shown we're starting to manufacture our own things. Yes, yes. Um, so, in fact, John Adams um, worked hard to uh, introduce it into Massachusetts, in as he wrote to Abigail, his wife. Um, but he uh, he uh, he was made a rich man by this Robert Hare, um, and he he married into the well-off Willing family, and his connection launched him into Philadelphia society, allowing him to begin a career in politics. Uh, which was after the war, uh, but I mean, he—you can imagine all these very fervent patriots, and then congressmen would come to his tavern, and uh, you know, in the '60s, and then the early '70s, pre-revolutionary war, um, that you know he. He was right in the thick of it, just because of his beer. <laughs> I thought it was great, <laughs> but but anyways, um, so it, it and this is the importance of the taverns. Why you know so many you know the taverns that still exist, um, and, and there are few in Philadelphia uh, that you know where the men met. In fact, there there was one here in in the area that I lived that George Washington stopped at. It is no longer exists, but he would stop at the tavern here on his way to wherever he was going, and he would meet with the people of in the area um, to discuss things and and to see what you know the news. It, it was like you know uh, it was a meeting place. For the the patriot leaders and and the then the army and uh, the Congress to get together and in fact when the Constitution uh, Constitutional Convention started in Philadelphia in '87, um, the tavern there was that one tavern they all went to um, after the meetings. During the day, they would a lot of them would go. They they would go over to the tavern and they sit in their little you know little parties and talk amongst themselves. And then they would talk with each other about you know what was transpiring during that summer. So eh, taverns were were the very important part of of uh, getting uh, information to other people and finding out news. And what was happening, and where do we go from here, and what have you heard, and 
what has transpired and what hasn't transpired. So, so Mr. Peer and Mr. Hare and his porter helped the Patriots. <laughs> I love that. As they they said that the the title of the uh, the article is Mr. Hare's Porter Beer was fuel for the revolution. Well, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all you beer lovers, raise a glass or a tankard <laughs> or a bowl, whatever you got. <laughs> okay, so now we're back to Sarah and... Okay, so she's going to have to leave. There it is. Okay. The approach of the British Army from New Jersey in December 1766 induced Mr. Box to remove his family to Gloshan Township in Chester County, from which place the following letter was addressed by Mrs. Box to her father, who in the previous October had been sent to France by the American Congress. Mrs. Bach's eldest son accompanied him and was educated in France and Geneva under the supervision of his grandfather, which we didn't know. I had no idea his grandson was with him. Did you? Mm-mm. Um, sure, I knew that, but I, I, until I read that, I hadn't really, you know, remembered because it's been a while since I read his book. Okay. So, um... She had to leave a couple of different times. I'm going to read the uh, letter, and then, she, again, she's leaving. And then, Deb, you're going to kind of give us an overview of where she is because it was kind of hard to, to find her and follow her. Okay, so this is what she wrote to her father. We are still about 24 miles from Philadelphia in Chester County, the next plantation to where Mr. Ashbridge used to live. We have two comfortable rooms, and we are as happy, happily situated as I can be separated from Mr. Bach. He comes to see us often as his business will permit. Your library we sent out of town well packed in boxes a week before us and all the valuable things, mahogany accepted, we brought with us. That's really important to note because she at least had time to gather her father's things. Most of the people that were in Philadelphia, they didn't have enough time money, or people to help them do so, right? Right. There was such confusion that it was... Go ahead. Got the word that the British were coming through New Jersey. Um, And, you know, some waited to see, but um, those who got the news, you know, could could be ready, but they never knew. They they didn't know. Um, You know, news was... Uh, maybe, maybe not. You, you couldn't really uh, count on it. So, um, so some had, yeah. Some, some were. You know, she was, of course, connected. If you were connected to those in the committees of correspondence people, then yeah, you knew. But uh, you know, if you were just average Joe, and you know, you'd hear this news, you'd hear that news, and you never knew. Okay, she goes on. There was such confusion that it was a hard matter to get out at any rate. When we shall get back again, I not know. 
I know not. Though things are altered much in our favor since we left town. I think I shall never be afraid of staying in it again. If the enemy were only three miles instead of 30 from it, since our cowards, as Lord Sandwich calls them, are so ready to turn out against those heroes who were to conquer all before them, but have found themselves in so much mistaken, their courage never brought them to Trenton till they heard our army were disbanded. And there is really a Lord Sandwich, and he did make the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> he invented the sandwich. You know why he invented the sandwich? Because he was an avid gambler. And in order for he wanted to eat while he was gambling, and he wanted to invent something that he could hold with one hand so he could have the cards in the other. Right. Lord Sandwich. Yep, there you go. Mrs. Bach returned home with her family shortly after, but in the following autumn, the approach of the British Army after their victory on Brandywine, and I don't know if we, need to, if we have time to get into Brandywine. I think we do. Again drove them from Philadelphia. On the 17th of September, 1777, four days after the birth of her eldest daughter, Mrs. Bach left town, taking refuge at first in the hospitable mansion of her friend, Mrs. Bellyfield in Bucks County. Now, again, that amazes me, okay? How many, how many women, like, were giving birth and the next day they had to run away? Yeah. Four days after she had a baby. That's unheard of now. Unless you go to, unless you have a midwife, actually, they, they take birthing a whole different level. And, and actually, midwifery for birthing is becoming very popular. It has for a while. But in certain states, they're trying to get it so you could do it in your own home. Mm-hmm. And the legislatures are not having anything of it because you have to have licenses and, and homeowners insurance. There's a bunch of, well, I have a baby. Oh, it's good to keep women going to the hospitals. Is what okay. It is. Uh, they moved again to Mayhem Township in Lancaster County, where they remained until the evacuation of Philadelphia by the British forces. Sally didn't return with the children until October of 1778. So you want to give us a little overview of where they are? Yeah. Okay, this is what was going on at the time um, that we're speaking of now. Uh and this is from um, Explore Pennsylvania History, uh, the Philadelphia Campaign. Two days after George Washington had launched a bold, bloody, and failed assault on British forces occupying Philadelphia, he dictated a thoughtful note to his adversary, General Sir William Howe. It seemed that in the chaos of battle, the British commander had lost his dog. And Washington's message delivered on October 6, 1777, and written by his aide, Alexander Hamilton, read General Washington's compliments to General Howe. He does himself the pleasure to return him a dog, which accidentally fell into his hands, and by the inscription on the collar appears to belong to General Howe. So this is this is how the commanders were treating each other. Um, but the aftermath of the Battle of uh, Brandywine, however, was not completely civilized. About a week after the encounter, British troops led by Charles No. Flint Gray surprised a contingent of Americans under the commander of the command of Anthony Wayne at Paoli on September 21st. Wayne, who was a native of the area, had convinced General Washington that he could disrupt the British supply lines with irregular guerrilla-style attacks. Instead, the British commander ordered his men to attack the American camp at midnight with only bayonets fixed, no flint for their muskets, and under cover of night slaughtered their enemies. The result 
the Paoli Massacre, in which 53 Continental soldiers were killed and 100 wounded. This wartime atrocity became a rallying cry for retribution by the Continental Army. It wasn't Wayne's last stand, however. He survived both the attack and a subsequent court-martial. And then there was the Battle of Germantown in October, and this was intended as revenge, not only for the Continentals' defeat at Brandywine and Paoli, but also for the subsequent occupation of Philadelphia by the British. Washington convinced his generals to back an ambitious plan to attack British positions in Germantown on the outskirts of the city in four separate columns that would proceed as Gray's forces in complete silence during the middle of the night. What resulted was a small disaster of confusion, mistaken identities, poor battlefield decisions, and missed opportunities for the Continental Army. Some of the American regiments got lost, others distracted, some got so turned around they ended up shooting at other Americans. The key to the battle was a pocket of British resistance at a residence along the main road through Germantown. Clive Denner, the Chew Mansion, named after its owner, Pennsylvania jurist Benjamin Chew, provided cover for a brave contingent of royal soldiers who simply refused to surrender. Rather than continuing their assault, the Americans wasted valuable time trying to dislodge the stubborn 40th Regiment led by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Musgrave. The bitterness that began to explode in the aftermath of the Germantown defeat was contained only by the good news from Saratoga, New York. Two weeks after Washington's forces lost their assault on Philadelphia, Continental General Horatio Gates secured the surrender of British General John Burgoyne's 9,000 troops in Saratoga. The two events were not unrelated. Washington's continued activity kept Howe locked down in Pennsylvania, but many Americans now opened the question openly questioned the quality of their military leadership. Dr. Benjamin Rush, for one, viewed Washington's principal subordinates during the Philadelphia campaign with scorn. He called General Nathaniel Green a sycophant to the commander-in-chief, dismissing him as timid, speculative, and without enterprise. He labeled General John Sullivan in New Hampshire, weak, vain, without dignity, fond of scribbling, and in the field of a madman. Um, it, Benjamin Frank, or Benjamin, uh, Rush was not necessarily a friend of the American army. Uh, the British forces, uh, wait a minute. The fall of Fort Mifflin to the British in mid-November did little help to did little to help Washington's standing. Even though the defenders of the American outpost bravely withstood British bombardment for weeks, the surrender of the fort meant that Howe had now perhaps gained permanent control of Philadelphia. The British forces found life in the city quite hospitable living easily among the well-heeled Tory merchants. By comparison, the American forces, lingering as they were on the outskirts of Philadelphia, suffered greatly during the winter of 77 to 78 from their sacrifices. However, came a new sense of discipline and urgency that helped focus the revolutionaries on ultimate victory. So she wasn't far from all this. Um, let's see. She, she was how many miles? 24 miles from Philadelphia and Chester County. Okay, well, these areas that she's talking about are not far from where she was going. You know, I mean, she could go to a, a her her you know um, friends' house, uh, houses and whatnot, the plantations that she went to because they were well to do. But still, the road the roads there. You never knew, you know, if you were going to come across, you know, some kind of, um, oh, what do they, skirmish. 
I mean, because the, the, the British troops were moving into Philadelphia. Washington was fighting the British, other British other troops, you know, around there, the little regiments that were around, trying to keep them from getting into Philadelphia. And General Howe just kept pounding onward. And, uh, and General Washington kept being defeated. So there was, there was a lot of activity in the area. I mean, Congress left. You know, they, they, we're getting out of Philadelphia. And um, so it was, it was a pretty precarious area and time. Which is why her husband sent her away. Right. And then the kids, and she had little babies, and she was a Franklin, for goodness sake, right? Yes, and she was lucky in that. I mean, other people had to leave with what they could put, you know, in a cart if they had a horse or on their backs if they didn't. <clears throat> and the, the the Whigs left because, you know, with the British coming, the Tories were just excited and welcoming. Well, what I'm saying is that she had a bigger bullseye on her back than the average person would. Yeah, so, you know, she had to get out. And, of course, Bucks County, I lived in Bucks County, and, in Doylestown, and, and that, was, that, was, uh, that wasn't too bad. That was, um, that was up a ways out of the thick of it. But there was still stuff going on in Doylestown, you know. So Pennsylvania at this time, Philadelphia area and surrounding counties were, were uh, full of Brits you know, and, and the Continental Army trying to keep them from reaching Philadelphia. So there you are. Yep. Okay, i got to find my glasses. <laughs> All righty. Um, so she's going back and forth, back and forth. Um... Let's see. Now, the, well, we have a bunch of letters to read, but I'm, I don't want to. Okay. So let's say now she's going to go back, and we said all that. Um, there's more letters. Okay. So she's back in, back in Philadelphia, and this is what she writes for her, her father. Once more, I have the happiness of addressing you from the dearly beloved city. Ever having been kept out of it more than nine months, I found your house and furniture upon my return to town. Now, notice she was always addressing that it's her father and her mother's house. That that was very important to me because her mother died many many years ago, and she had she has been the woman of the house. She's the one that's taking care of it. She's the one that uh, you know handles all the guests. Um, She's the one of the house, but she won't address it that way. She's always going to say that this is your house, Daddy. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. Because really, she's been taking care of it for how many years? Almost 10 years? Or four oh, years? Been there. Uh, Seven, never died in 74. So like four years. Yeah. And she's still, it's not, it's not her house. It's her, her father and her mother's house. Um, let's see. 
I found your house and furniture upon my return to town in much better order than I reason that I had reason to expect from the hands of such a raucous crew. They stole and carried off with them some of your musical instruments, a Welsh harp, ball harp, the set of tuned, bill, tuned bells, which were in a box, viol and gamba, all the spare amonica glasses, and one or two spare cases. Your amonica is safe. Could you look up what that is? Oh, yeah, that's that wonderful thing. I'll get a description of it. Um, it, it was quite a quite a fascinating instrument. Hold on. They took likewise the few books that were left behind, the chief of which were Temple's school book, and the history of the arts and sciences in French, which is a great loss to the public. Some of your electric apparatus is missing also. A Captain Andre also took with him the picture of you which hung in the dining room. The rest of the pictures are safe and met with no damage. And the reason that he took the picture of him is because they need to identify who Franklin was. Okay? Um, uh, that's the only reason they would take his picture, so that they could pass it on to everybody so they would know who Franklin was because he was a traitor. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, yeah. He, he, and plus he was, um, he, he had upset King George III quite terribly uh, in England, which is why he came home. That's a whole other story. So he wasn't. He was. He didn't have. He had a lot of enemies in Parliament. King George wasn't happy with him, so he was back in America. And the Patriots weren't all that happy with him either, because he kept standing up for Britain, because he felt he was still a British uh, citizen at the time. Um, and he didn't, because he had spent 10 years in London, he didn't uh, totally understand uh, until um, this trouble he began to have in England that, and he, he found out more of what was going on in America. And then he, he realized that it was a serious affair and he needed to look more closely into it. But the Patriots weren't too thrilled with him in the beginning. They didn't know if he was with them or not. Um, but then they came to, you know, he 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 finally um, understood what was really going on in the colonies, and and uh, you know, it changed his perspective a little. Well, quite a bit, in fact. And he came home. So. Okay, so the rest of the pictures are safe and met with no damage except the frame of Alfred, which is broken to pieces. The postscript to this letter is curious. I wish I could have sent to me from France two dozen of padlocks and keys fit for malls and a dozen post horns. They are not to be had here. So um, he, the Andre, uh, Captain Andre was quartered in Franklin's house uh, during the British occupation in Philadelphia. So that's what she's talking about, that he was, him and his uh, army were in their house while they were gone. Um, let's see. Again, um, da, 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 da. and she just goes, there's a couple of different letters, and maybe we'll read them, maybe we won't. But um, this is what you're talking. This is a reply to him. Dr. Franklin's reply seems to express some dissatisfaction at the gaiety of his countrymen, which he considered unseasonable. 
Mrs. Bach thus excuses herself from participating in it in a letter dated September 14, 1779. I am indeed much obliged to you for your very kind present. It never could have come at a more seasonable time, and particularly so as they are all necessary. But how could my dear Papa give me so severe a reprimand for wishing a little finery? He would not, I am sure, if he knew how much I have felt it. Last winter was a season of triumph to the Whigs, and they spent it gaily. You would not have had me, I am sure, stay away from the ambassadors or general's entertainment, nor when I was invited to spend the day with General Washington and his lady. And you would have been the last person, I am sure, to have wished to see me dressed with singularity. Though I never love dress so much as to wish to be particularly fine, yet I will never go out when I cannot appear to do so as to credit to my family and my husband. I can assure you, my dear Papa, that industry in this country is by no means laid aside. But if it's spinning linen, we cannot think of all that till we have got that wool which we spun three years ago. Mr. Dunfield has bribed a weaver that lives on his farm to weave me 18 yards by banking him three or four shuttles for nothing and keeping it a secret from the country people who will not suffer them to weave for those in town. This is the third weaver that has been at, and, and, and many fair promises I have had about it. Tis now done and whitening, but 40 yards of the best remains at Lisbon's yet, and that I was to have come home at 12 months last month. So, again, that just shows, that was great that you said that, because, look, it's showing even... He's having problems with his daughter. And she's like, I'm over here, Dad. Yeah. Uh, I have to handle these people. I have to meet with these people. I can't look like a vagabond. Yeah. You know, you don't know what we're going. This is, this is wonderful. I love when we find these things and then it surprises us. Because he doesn't know what they're going through over here. He doesn't know that his grandchildren are running around the freaking countryside hiding. Yeah. Because he's in England and they can, you know, correspondence to get back and forth is really hard. So she's like, like I love, I love it. You know, you would not, you would have been the last person, I'm sure, to have wished me to be dressed with singularity or, or not with meet with the general or not meet with George Washington. You know what I'm saying? That's, yeah. This is wild. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> And then you have to realize that because they were boycotting products from Britain and there wasn't much manufacturing going on in, in the colonies because England didn't want the competition for their British merchants, um, that they were, I mean, Abigail Adams had John Adams, when he was over in Europe, send straight pins to her yep. that she yep. sold. To all the ladies, and all the ladies were cu- cutting up their linens to make shirts for the army. Right, and they didn't have any, you know, and to make it, and their kids were growing, you know, they had to to make do um, with what they had, and they didn't have much. And plus, the fact that many merchants engaged in price gouging. What you could, you know, before the war, you could get for, you know, a shilling was now five pounds. So, and then there was, a, you know, every colony had its own money, and some money was good and some money wasn't, and, oh, it was just a mess. So, uh, that, that's just going to go on. <laughs> 
My maid is now spinning wool for winter stockings for the whole family, which will be no difficulty in the manufactory as I knit them myself. I only mention these things that you may see that balls are not the only reason that the wheel is laid aside. This winter approaches with so many horrors that I shall not want. I'm, I'm going to start crying because <laughs> I'm sitting here and it's like negative two. <laughs> but at least I have a heater. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my windows are completely covered in ice. Deb. Oh, I bet. Because I hurt my arm and I haven't had time to put insulation up on them. Yeah. I usually insulate all this with the plastic insulation mm-hmm. and seal it. And I, I hurt my eye. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I pulled a, I ripped my, I tore my um, pectoral muscle uh, last month, and um, I'm barely doing things as it is. But anyway, okay, so uh, yeah, I'm just feeling sorry for myself, I think. <laughs> I'm reading this. Yes. <laughs> this is going to be like negative 25 tomorrow. I know. Okay, this winter approaches with so many horrors that I shall not want anything to go abroad in if I could be comfortable at home. My spirits which have kept me up during my being drove about from place to place much better than most people I meet with have been lowered by nothing but the deprecation of the money which has been amazing lately. So that home will be the place of me this winter as I cannot get a common winter cloak and hat but just decent under 200 pounds as to gauze now, it is $50 a yard. Tis beyond my wish, and I should think it not only a shame, but a sin to buy it if I had millions. It is indeed, as you say, the money is too cheap, for there are so many people that are not used to have it, nor the proper use of it, and get so much that they care not whether they give $1 or 100 for anything they want. But to those whose every dollar is the same as a silver one, <laughs> which is our case, isn't it, Deb? Yeah. And she says, which is our case, it is particularly hard, for Mr. Bach could not bear to do business in the manner it has been done in this place. And that's what he's talking about, price gouging right there, right? Mm-hmm. Which has been almost all by monopolizing and forestalling. So, <laughs> in the patriotic effort of the ladies of Philadelphia to furnish the destitute American soldiers with money and clothing during the year 1780, Mrs. Bach took a very active part. And now it goes on after the death of Mrs. Reed. The duty of completing the collections and contributions devolved on her and four other ladies as a sort of executive committee. Now, we need to go and talk about the Ladies' Association of Philadelphia. Yes, and this is by Jacqueline Beatty. And we actually have highlighted Mrs. Reed. Yes, we have. Esther DeBart Reed. Mm -hmm. Um, This is from the Encyclopedia Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia. Okay, the Ladies' Association of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a center of patriotic fervor and activity during the American Revolution. Many of its residents, including women, participated in the war for independence by providing material and moral support for the patriot cause. So you can see how the British coming into Philadelphia and occupying it was really a a sore point for for the patriots. you know, I mean, it was where the Congress met. It was the, you know, the city of brotherhood and, and all that. And so, you know, it, it was a hard time for them. But there were many, many patriots in Philadelphia. And when they came back after the British left, then they got to work here. So on June, June 12, 1780, one such Philadelphian, Esther DeBart Reed, 
penned a broadside entitled Sentiments of an American Woman in order to rouse her fellow women to participate in the revolutionary cause. As a result, dozens of women responded to Reed's call, forming the Ladies Association of Philadelphia, a group of upper-class women who led a door-to-door campaign raising money for Washington's Continental Army. Through their efforts, the association ladies came to recognize their essential role in winning American independence. <coughs> Excuse me. Reed's Traft summoned her female peers to fulfill the promise they made at the outset of the war, asserting that women were both animated by the purest patriotism and born for liberty, authoritatively dismissing the notion that women were not patriotic or political beings. The broadside harped back to women of the past who had proven the merit of their patriotic contributions, providing a precedent for women's political activism. Compelling her female compatriots to aid the suffering of the soldiers, Reed reminded Philadelphia's women how they, along with women across the colonies, had participated in the boycotting of teas as well as spinning bees, both feats of female political activity performed in the name of the American cause. The offering of the ladies, Reed averred, was nothing new. Indeed, she was merely impressing upon her audience the need to reaffirm the commitment they had already made to the revolution. Just three days after the Pennsylvania Gazette published the broadside under the title Sentiments of an American Woman, more than 30 women gathered to discuss the best way to aid the revolutionary troops. After a productive meeting, the newly formed Ladies Association of Philadelphia published its notes, which appeared in newspapers across the British colonies. Members similarly wrote letters to their acquaintances in neighboring colonies suggesting that they imitate the efforts of the LAP. Sarah Franklin Bach followed suit and wrote letters to her female friends soliciting their assistance, and women in New Jersey and Maryland copied the Ladies Association of Philadelphia model in their own fundraising efforts. Working independently and without without the assistance of men, the association collected more than $300,000. Though the group, group originally desired that the funds be distributed directly to the soldiers as remuneration for their patriotism, Washington desired that the funds be used to purchase materials for and manufacture clothing, which the Continental Army needed desperately. Washington thanked the association for the group's contribution to the cause of liberty, and one soldier composed a poem in the women's honor, recognizing the patriot females who their country saved. The work of the Ladies' Association of Philadelphia became a model of political activity for women in the years of the early republic. Most importantly, these Philadelphia women proved their mettle, took the initiative to participate in the American cause, and recognized their essential contribution to the colony's ultimate victory. And it wasn't without, um, you know, just like today when, you know, we we uh, try to do something in in the cause of our country, and the naysayers come out. I mean, she... Uh, the women that went from door to door were um, denigrated by other women who thought it was quite distasteful and not the act of a lady to go door to door to uh, get funds. So they they came up against their their uh, naysayers too, but it didn't stop them. And they kept on. You know, and it's amazing that conservative women 
will not do this. It, this is how much it's, it's flip-flopped. But prog women will do this and more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's just sad. <laughs> well, it's the difference between positive and negative. Um, and, and destructive versus creative. The 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 leftists, whatever they're calling themselves, God knows, I can't keep up with, they keep changing their name. But anyway. Their, their names are progs. They are progressives. I'm calling them progs. I will not call them leftists. I will not call them anything to do with liberty. No, no, no. no, they're they're Bolsheviks, and uh, and look up Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, and you will understand why I call them such. Um, <clears throat> but they they only know how to destroy, whereas people who believe in the Republic of these United States and adhere to the Constitution, <clears throat> who have read the Constitution and kind of understand what it means. It says what it means, and it means what it says. Uh, we're productive. We're creative. We look to find a solution, not a destruction. And and that's the difference. And they're right, and we're you know I mean they're they're wrong, and we're right because there's there's good and there's not good, and it's time we got back to that. Oh, I love the new thing too. And and ladies and gentlemen, just. Think of it this way. They always come up with catchphrases, okay? And they did so back in the, Re- in the Revolutionary War. I think the Civil War was the only one that really didn't come out with a catchphrase. But most wars, they come out with a catchphrase. And the Civil War did the same thing. I did the Revolutionary War, which is the Civil War. You know, like, give me liberty or give me death. Um, that, I think there was one by the British that the... Um, there's something about the patriot, the, the rebels are coward dogs. I mean, and then they would they would talk amongst themselves and say all that. Well, the progs are doing the same thing. They've been doing it for like a hundred years, coming up with catchphrases like "When they go lower, we go higher." Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's yeah. like um, you progs have stooped to the lowest denominator anybody on the planet has. Well, not that's true. Stalin didn't. Mao didn't. Oh yeah, that's right. They're, they're heroes, but you have, to, you have to sit. You have to sit through this minutia, and this is exactly what the the British did as well. Okay, and the Tories and the Loyalists, they did propaganda, and that brings it up all the time. And now we have it all over again. Yep. Okay. Uh, Nature. I mean, it, the Romans did it. The the Greeks did it. Yeah. You know, so it's just human nature, and that's the one thing our founders were so just incredible in their in their knowledge of human nature. See, we don't we don't we have social studies now and psychiatry or psychology, the the study of psychology. Um, they 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 studied human nature and, and governments run by humans. And that's yep. how they came up with the Constitution. Yep. Okay, so um, let's see. So we have to, now we say after the death of Mrs. Reed, the duty of completing the collections and contributions devolved on Mrs. Bach, Franklin's daughter. 
and four other ladies. The shirts provided were cut at her house. A letter to Dr. Franklin, a part of which has been published, blah, 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 shows the work she was engaged in. The Marquis de Chalassol thus describes a visit which he paid her about this time. After the slight repast, now, now think about this. She's got all these kids. She's been running around the place, running away from the British. Her father is uber famous. I mean, he's not just a little bit famous. He's uber famous, okay, like Trump's kids. He's like, he might as well be Trump, right? <laughs> he's the belle of France. <laughs> and, he's, and, the, and the English hate his guts. I mean, this man is uber, uber famous. <laughs> you can't even, you can't shake a stick at some, like, bunkin that's in the middle of nowhere out in the frontier and say, do you know who Frenchman Franklin is? And they go, Yeah. <laughs> This is like the Kardashian of her time, <laughs> except she's she's better. The Kardashians suck. Well, at least she did something to be famous for. <laughs> but anyway, just think about this. So she was going back and forth. She's got all these kids with her. She's like her father's uber famous. The war is like at full tilt. She's running away from the British and. She's going to take on this huge responsibility to help clothe the American Revolutionary Army. Now, Esther didn't even have as much as she did. Now, Esther was kind of low-key. Um, she had, I can't imagine newspapers, you know, back then, what they wrote about her. Yeah, I wish I could find something. Yeah, I mean, I just, again, this is like, this is Trump's family. I mean, it's just, they probably went nuts on her. Okay, so they're making all these shirts at her house, and the letter to Dr. Franklin says about um, what he saw. After the slight repast, which only lasted an hour and a half, we went to visit the ladies, agreeable to the Philadelphia custom, where the morning is the most proper hour for paying visits. We began by Mrs. Bach, which is Franklin's daughter. She merited all the anxiety we had to see her, for she is the daughter of Mr. Franklin. Hence my point, right? Yes. Simple in her manners, like her respected father, she possesses his benevolence. Oh, and by the way, a picture of her, Deb, he, she looks just like her dad. Yeah. Doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> she looks just like her dad. Simple in her manners like her respected father, she possesses his benevolence. She conducted us into a room filled with work, lately finished by the ladies of Philadelphia. This work consisted neither of embroidered camber waistcoat coats, nor of network edging, nor of gold or silver brocade. It was a quality of shirts for the soldiers of Pennsylvania. The ladies brought the linen from their own private purses and took a pleasure in cutting them out and sewing them themselves. Man, we were so awesome back then, weren't we? Uh-huh. On each, and we can be again. I, I, I think we can be again. On each shirt was the name of the married or unmarried lady who made it. Uh, hence, the, the brand, right? Mm-hmm. But this is what the ladies did the manufacturing, the first manufacturing with Homespun, and they did the brand. Like, I'm looking at my phone as Samsung. Well, there, that shirt was Miss Joy, but it was her friend. Again, we created everything, right? Yep. 
excuse me, married or unmarried lady who made it, and they amounted to $2,200. Mrs. Box then writes to Mrs. Meredith and Trenton, I'm happy to have it in my power to tell you that the sums given by the good women of Philadelphia for the benefit of the Army have been much greater than could be expected, and given with so, so much cheerfulness and so many blessings that it is, was rather a pleasing than a painful task to call for it. I write to claim you as a Philadelphian and shall think myself honored for your don- in your donation. A letter of M.D. Marcos to Dr. Franklin the preceding year thus speaks of his daughter. If there were, wait, if there are in Europe any woman who need a model of attachment to domestic duties and love for their country, Mrs. Bach may be, the pointed, may be pointed out to them as such. She passed a part of the last year in exertions to rouse the zeal of Pennsylvania ladies, and she made on this occasion such a happy use of the eloquence which you know she possesses that a large part of the American army was provided with shirts, bought with their money, or made by their hands. In her applications for this purpose, she showed the most indefatigable zeal the most unwary perseverance and a courage in asking, which surpassed even the obstinate reluctance of the Quakers in refusing. The letters of Mrs. Bach show much force of character and an ardent, generous, and impulsive nature. She has a strong remembrance of kindness and attachment to her friends, and in writing to her father, her veneration for him is ever apparent, combined with the confidence and affection of a devoted daughter. Her beloved children are continually the theme on which her pen delights to dwell. Again and again, the reading with parental interest, domestic details like the following. Willie begins to learn his book very well and has an extraordinary memory. He has learned these last holidays the speech of Anthony over Caesar's body, which he can scarcely speak without tears. (laughs) That's when we were educated, huh? Uh Uh-huh. When Betsy looks at your picture here, she wishes her grandpa had teeth, that he might be able to talk to her, and has frequently tried to tempt you to walk out of the frame with a piece of apple pie. Aww. Uh-huh. He likes best. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to cry. Lewis is remarkable for his sweet temper and good spirits. To her son, she says, there's nothing would make me happier than you're making a good and useful man. Every instruction with regards to your morals and learning, I am sure you have gotten from your grandpa. I shall therefore only add my prayers that all he recommends may be strictly attended to. So that was her. And I'm going to go here. All right. uh, So the family moved. um, Let's see. In 1785, Benjamin Franklin returned to Philadelphia and spent his remaining years in the care of Sally and her family. And with the the descendants of the friends of his early years, most of whom he had survived. When Franklin died, he left most of his estate to Sally and her husband, including a miniature portrait of Louis 1516 surrounded by diamonds, which she sold against his wishes to finance a trip to London. In 1794, Richard gave up his commercial pursuits and the family moved to a farm outside Philadelphia on the Delaware River, 16 miles above Philadelphia. There they spent 13 years making their residence the seat of hospitality. 
1807, Sally was attacked by cancer and returned to Philadelphia in the winter of 1707 to 1808 for medical care. Her disease was incurable, and on October 15, 1808, she died at the age of 64. Her remains, with those of her husband, who survived her only by a few years, are buried in the Christ Church Burial Ground in Philadelphia, besides those of her parents. And that was Sally Franklin Buck. Yes. God bless her. Yes. And you think, we have um, so many of these, you know, well, not so many, God knows, but we have many stories of the upper-class women because they had the means and, and the connections to do a lot. But you, But then we also have so many women who were, you know, just mothers working their family farm with their husbands, and their husbands go off to war, and they don't see them, you know, infrequently for years. And the women are on these farms taking care of the children and the animals and then the crops and everything, and defending their home not only against the British, but the Indians as well. You know those on the in the in the wilderness as they called it back then, and um, so you, it's just incredible to me that during this time, women did what they had to do, and then some. And what they had to do was enough, but they they stepped up and went the extra mile. They didn't sit there and cry for safe spaces. Or need therapy dogs and coloring books. These women took up muskets and protected their homes. Well, you know, and it was the same thing until after World War Two. I mean, even during World War One and World War Two, when the when the the sons and and fathers and uncles they had to go to war. Um, the women back here, they they stepped up to the plate. And you know what? Despite what the feminine Nazis say third generation, fourth, well, there's three generation feminazis. Um, when the men came back, and they actually, they made movies on this, and but of course you're not going to see them, you're going to see the opposite. They were happy to go back home. Yep. They were like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Can I go to like mop floor something? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there was some of them that were, but the majority of women were like, you know, it's more important for me to take care of my family. This was really hard on me. Well, and yeah, and they, but there were there were women who who loved working, and they put their foot forward to be able to work outside the home, um, and you know, going against society's idea at the time. But for the most part, women, you know, they they stepped up, did took on the extra, and, I mean, other women would take in the women's children that had, you know, the women would go work in the factories and, and make the airplanes and the ships and everything, and other women would take in the children during the day while their mothers worked. You know, it was it was a community effort where, okay, we've got to support our, you know, we, we have to support our, our husbands, our brothers, our cousins, our sons who are fighting by keeping... You know, I call them the hearth warriors. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I have to use that. Yeah, the hearth warriors, because they kept 
things at home working as well as supporting the the army and the marines and the sailors and the airmen um well, and you know and then like the vietnam well because we're talking about wars and the vietnam war just shamed these women because mm. that was the beginning of feminism and they shamed the women that wanted to stay home they shamed the women that wanted to go back home so the whole part of what they were trying to do was saying that we have a choice, but the feminists and the feminazis are telling us we don't. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that I couldn't understand because I had a guidance counselor in high school. I wanted to train horses. There weren't any women training horses. There was like three that, that you know, were breaking into the man's world of training horses and being valid. I had a guidance counselor who says, no, with your grades, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. This is in the 70s, early 70s. And all my life, all I wanted to do was work with horses. I wanted to train horses. I wanted to make some of the best trail riding horses you ever did see. And they talked me down. You know, you can't do that. No, with your grades, you have to become a doctor or a lawyer. I said, well, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, that's the point. That was it. They were like, no, you have to be this. You have to go into the main world. Why the hell do I, I don't want to? I wanted the same thing with me. I wanted, when I first got, well, my life was kind of weird. But again, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. But it was the same thing. And I was like, no, I want to be a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I be a nurse? Yes, and that—that's the thing. That's what I ended up being, but why are you tolerating me to be something else? I don't want to be in the man's world. I want to be a nurse. Well, and and be good. It, but it wasn't even that I wanted to be in the man's world. I just wanted to train horses. You know, I mean, it wasn't a political thing at the age of fifteen. I just wanted to train horses. But then, when I did get into the political area of the feminist, and, and I was sort of, well, I was in the feminist movement in the in the early seventies. Um, but I got so dis- disillusioned by it because of the lack of choice. I said to this guidance counselor, I said, I thought the whole reason that the women were fighting for equality was so that they could do what they damn well pleased. You know, I want to be a horse trainer, and you're telling me I can't or, or I shouldn't? I mean, it was just like... Wait a minute. Where's the choice in this? Yeah, you know, why, wanna... why are you yelling at women who want to be moms? What's wrong with being a mother? I see. I couldn't understand that whole discounting half the human race for one thing, you know, and then discounting a mother's, you know, someone who wanted to be a mother. Because at that point, I never wanted to be a mother. You know, I just didn't want anything to do with being a mother. But I couldn't understand why I was supposed to think that women who wanted to be mothers were lesser. Right. Well, anyway, we're off the top of the hour, and I'm going to let you take us out, but I want to tell everyone, Happy New Year. Please, pray to God. God came back to us this year. Yeah. I hate to tell you, God's coming back. Just keep praying. He's going. He's listening to us. And go to the Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us. PatriotsPub.us, arm yourself with knowledge. That's uh, just an educational endeavor. Only the facts about the Constitutional Convention of 1787, and that will take us out. Okay. And because I am the mother of a staff sergeant in the Army, 
and it's a female staff sergeant. God bless her. Um, I am very much, you know, watching what is happening with uh, our soldiers, Marines, Airmen, and Navy men, and our vets. Oh, don't let up. We need our our Congress critters, our state and federal Congress critters, to know that even though we're going to have a new president and, uh, you know, praise be, he supports the troops and the vets, uh, we still need our local and state Congress critters to know we are not going to stand down, that we are watching our kids in uniforms and those who have worn the uniforms, uh, we're watching their sick. So please, you know, if nothing else, go to a VA hospital and visit with the vets. Go to your state and local rep or, you know, your local and federal uh, representatives and let them know that what has been happening with our soldiers and Marines and Airmen and Navy men and um, our veterans is a travesty and a black eye in America that they have earned everything that was promised to them and they should get it. And with that, I will say Happy New Year to everyone out there. Thanks for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be here next week, same time. And good night, Loki. God bless you, and uh, we miss you so. Good night, everybody.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.